to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11, and I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray Uh, Lord, that you would uh, illumine our hearts and minds, that we would receive it with humility and with love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as I mentioned before, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 11 uh, through 13. Uh, We're called to remember who we were. And particularly in the first century, in this context, God is speaking Paul, uh, God is speaking through Paul to these Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, but we will soon see how it so clearly applies to us. Several years ago, while playing professional soccer, we had an away game in San Francisco, California, and of course, playing for Charlotte, it was exciting to be back in the area that I grew up in, in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area, Santa Clara Valley, Um, And a day before our big game, a few of my teammates and I, we decided that uh, we were going to go check out the city. Now, that's a bit of a risk uh, when you want to walk around and check out the city in San Fran, but uh, we decided to do that. And a few of us were walking near Fisherman's Wharf, and a palm reader uh, caught my eye, and she said to me, come over here and let me tell you your future. Come over here and let me tell you your future. Well, I responded by saying that I did not need her to tell me my future because Jesus Christ was my Savior, and I already knew what my future entailed. Namely, I would be with him in heaven forever and ever by his grace. She then got this terrible look on her face, this look which almost looked demonic. And she said, forget about Jesus. Forget about Jesus. 
There was no question that Jesus had not been good for her business. She was not happy about my response. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, as Christians, we are told, we are taught about our past, about our present, and about our future as God's people. At the beginning of chapter 1, we are told, of course, that God set his love and affection upon us even before the foundation of the world, even before time began. Then, in order to secure the redemption, which he purposed before time, he sent his son into the world, not merely to be an example, but rather to obey the law of God on our behalf and to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In chapter 1 and verse 7, it states that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. But this was not all that we learn in chapter 1. For Christ's work, that which was purposed before time, that which was accomplished in time, Christ's work needed to be applied to those whom he chose. In other words, there needed to be an application of the redemption that the Father planned and that the Christ accomplished. How would this happen? Well, it would be carried out by the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we know that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. It's revealed that He is the seal of our salvation, namely that He is uh, an earnest or a down payment. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who unites dead sinners to the risen Christ by grace through faith and and that, that union then makes a dead sinner alive in Christ, creating faith within him through the means of God's holy gospel. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 are a summary, of course, of that amazing work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are familiar verses that we all uh, memorize and teach to our children, which say this, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God. The gift of God. It's what I'm going to be preaching next week in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, namely boast in themselves. We do boast. We're called to boast. We're called to boast in the Lord. If we added anything to this equation, we would have reason to boast in ourselves, but we do not. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end, all to the praise of His glorious grace. People may debate that now. True Christians may debate those things now, but in heaven, nobody will debate this. In heaven, nobody will be saying, well, I wonder if we had something to do with our salvation. Nobody will say that. Everyone will be a Calvinist. Everyone will embrace this truth that salvation is all of God, all to the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians chapter 1. Now, why did Paul spend so much time, that is two and a half chapters to be exact, 
explaining the finer points of salvation by grace. Why did he spend so much time on all of this doctrine? I think it's a question that really should be asked every time uh, preachers stand on the pulpit because there's so much confusion in the world about the importance of doctrine. Why would Paul spend so much time writing this letter, spending time talking about predestination and election and talking to us about what, who we were and, and who we are now and what happened to us uh, in our salvation? Many in our own day would see this as unnecessary. The answer is because Paul knew that the Ephesians' understanding of salvation would shape their thinking and shape their lives as Christians. This was discipleship. This is discipleship. He knew that a right view of salvation would transform the lives of God's people, causing them to live before God, before His face, Coram Deo, with an ever-increasing gratitude and obedience, motivated by love for God and confidence in His grace, and not motivated by guilt or a fear of exclusion from God, a fear of acceptance from God. So many in the world today are living in fear for various reasons, because they have not been accepted or sensed or perceived that they have not been accepted. But in Christ, we have been accepted by God. The greatest reconciliation has taken place. And so we need not live by guilt or fear, striving constantly to earn God's love and favor. No, we live in His grace. We do not live under the, the crushing demands and and condemnation of the law. We live under God's grace, set free from sin. And so we do not live by fear of exclusion from God. We live by faith because we've been accepted by God in Christ. Indeed, a right view of salvation fosters a reliance upon the grace of God and not upon our own moral strivings. Those who do focus on their moral strivings, are either defeated all the time, wondering if God loves them, or they're self-righteous all the time, comparing themselves constantly to those who are not doing things quite as well as they are. But you see, both of those are what Paul is fighting against, these kinds of ideas. Well, in our day, just as in the first century, there's much confusion about what it means to be a Christian. Consequently, there are many false gospels in our day, just as there were in Paul's. Many are being led astray by these false gospels. Now, the reason why Paul gets so specific in his preaching, he preaches doctrine. Because there are so many false ideologies and false gospels that are in the world. Many are being led to think that salvation has really little to do with being saved from guilt, sin, divine condemnation, eternal hell, and everything to do with personal fulfillment, health, prosperity, and a positive outlook in life. The gospel really is about being centered, they say. It's about having a good outlook in life and, and being therapeutically centered. But these so-called gospels are devoid of the cross. They lack the atoning blood. And it's only at the cross where the Son of God was crucified that we find true peace 
and true reconciliation with God. And as we will see this evening, reconciliation and peace with one another in Christ. The reason why so many in our nation are willingly embracing false gospels of health and wealth and positive thinking and identity politics and on and on we could go is because they have not understood, perhaps have never heard, the true gospel, the one that is so clearly set forth in Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul is concerned as a good pastor that these Ephesian believers understand the gospel. He wants them to understand what has happened to them, what has happened to them by God's grace and who they presently are in light of that grace and how, of course, they should live. If you break up Ephesians, you have the first three chapters, which are a lot of indicatives teaching us about who we are, who God is, who Christ is, why we need him. All these indicatives are there in chapters 1 through 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we have a lot of imperatives. Now, this is how you live, dear Christian, in light of your union and communion with Christ and one another. Well, our text for this morning is chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This is the beginning of a new section specifically dealing with Gentile believers in Ephesus. Notice with me in verse 11 where Paul speaks directly, directly to the Gentiles in the congregation, that is, those who are non-Jews, those who, who the Jews derisively named the uncircumcision. Paul mentions this name for two reasons. Number one, to make the point that the Gentiles were not a part of God's chosen nation of Israel and were looked down upon the Jews. They were not a part of that old covenant people of Israel. And so they were looked down upon by the Jews. Number two, to make the point, he he uses the word uncircumcision, to make the point that the Jews wrongfully emphasized the outward sign of circumcision without stressing the true inward meaning, namely that of the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Of course, you remember from Romans chapter 2 and verse 29. Paul mentions that uh, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You could just uh, put baptism in there, by the way. You could put baptism. Uh, A Christian is one inwardly and baptism is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Baptism is an outward sign which represents an inward reality and so Uh, In order to just, if you just focus on the outward sign and not what it truly represents, then you have missed the whole point. So in this section, Paul is writing directly to the Gentiles or non-Jews who have been saved by grace. This section runs from chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter. And in this section, Paul is making two main points. Number one. Redeemed Gentiles have been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. Redeemed Gentiles have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Number two, redeemed Gentiles have been united to Jewish believers through the blood of Christ. Redeemed Gentiles have been united to Jewish believers through the blood of Christ. 
In other words, communion with God through union with Christ and communion with one another through union with Christ. It's something that I often pray, Lord, thank you for my union with Christ. And thank you that in Christ, I have communion with God. I have communion with you. And then I'll pray something like this. And thank you that one of the blessed benefits and fruits of communion, of, of, excuse me, of union with Christ is communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, who are members of the body of Christ. And so we have union with Christ, and thus we have communion with God. We have union with Christ, and thus we have communion with one another. This morning, we'll deal specifically with the first overarching point, that Gentiles have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And again, we'll deal with the second, sec, second part of these verses this evening. So, in verses 13, 11 through 13, the Gentiles are exhorted to remember two things. Two things. First of all, Gentile believers are exhorted to remember who they once were. Gentile believers are exhorted to remember who they once were. Look with me again at verse 11. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who you once were. Really, in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, you have something similar going on. This is who you were. This is who you are. Uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 3, uh, we have... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God, verse 4, did all of these things to save you. And we have a similar kind of thing going on here. This is who you were. Now this is who you are. Who were they? First of all, we notice from our text that they were separated from Christ. In other words, unlike the nation of the Jews, they did not have the, the prophecies ceremonies, and types that would have pointed them to the promised Messiah. In Romans 9, verse 5, the Apostle Paul expounds on the advantages of the Jews in this regard when he says that the Jews, quote, to the Jews, rather, quote, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So unlike the Jews, the Gentiles were not looking for the Messiah. They were not anticipating a Messiah because they were totally ignorant of God's promises. They were worshipers, rather, of pagan idols. They had holy books, but they were filled with lies. The imaginations of men, the 
leads to Paul's second characterization of the Gentiles, namely that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, they were not citizens of God's chosen nation. And thus, they were not privy to God's special fatherly care, as were the people of Israel. So they were, sep- they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Thirdly, Paul reminds them that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, when it came to God's precious covenant promises made to, to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and of course uh, um, echoed all throughout uh, the Old Testament, Uh, when those covenant promises were made to Moses in the book of Exodus, when those covenant promises were made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, um, the Gentiles were strangers to all of these promises. They were unaware of them. Their children would grow up unaware of them. They were strangers to God's covenant promises. You know, sometimes we say how and think how, how shocked we are of what parents will teach their children and allow their children to, to watch and to participate in. We're, we're seeing uh, the madness and spiral of a degenerate culture uh, today, and uh, we have seen that uh, there are these uh, drag queen reading times in, in schools and uh, in, in kids' clubs, and parents are are bringing their children to be a part of this. You say, how can this be? Well, there's probably a longer explanation for this, but part of it is that they are strangers to the promises of God. They do not know. They are trying to fill the void with all kinds of worldly lies, with garbage, which that which will suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Who will tell them? Who will tell those who are separated from Christ and alienated from God and strangers to the promises? Fourthly, the Bible says they are without hope and without God in this world. In a nutshell, these Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the people of God, strangers to God's covenant promises. They were without hope, thus, and without God in the world. They were living in hopelessness, meaninglessness, with nowhere to turn but to vain idols and to hedonism, to pleasure-seeking. There is so much at our fingertips today Technological advances, the ability in our industries to create quality things for our lives that are not exorbitant in cost, the lower middle class American lives in, with more comfort than, than a, a medieval king. We have so much information, so much entertainment, so many technological advances, and yet depression is skyrocketing. 
suicide rates are multiplying. People are confused. They're angry. They're polarized. They're canceling one another. How can this be? It's because there's hopelessness. There is meaninglessness. They're turning to vain idols, and those idols are giving them empty promises. Remember, these Gentiles worshipped many gods before they became Christians. But Paul makes it clear that they were without God. We live in a day of expressive individualism where people think that their truth is truth. But that is not the way things are. This is a deceit and a lie of the devil. There is only one true God. And apart from him, there is no salvation. God is God and we are not God. God is God and nothing is God besides the one true and living God. But here's the good, th- the good news this morning. God does not leave these Gentiles in their miserable condition. Look with me now at verse 13. Paul writes, though all these things were true of you, but now. Paul loves these two words. We saw it last week in Romans 6. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here we come to the second point. Gentile believers are reminded of who they presently are. Paul has told them who they were. He's instructing them on who they were because Even believers who have been born again don't have all this straight in their head. And so Paul wants to instruct them and tell them who they were, and now he tells them who they are. Verse 13, they were far off, but now they have been brought near. Notice, first of all, the language that Paul uses here. They were brought near. They were brought near. A power outside of themselves brought them near to God. That power, of course, is the power of God, exercised by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. God sovereignly drew them to himself. He chose them before the foundation of the world, setting his love and affection upon them. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to satisfy all the requirements of the law of God. And then as a perfect law keeper, he went to the cross and died for our sins. He paid the full debt of our sins and he died and he rose from the dead. And now we are saved in him. His Holy Spirit was sent forth to draw us into a relationship with him. They were brought near. Secondly, they were brought near through something. They're coming into a personal relationship with God. They're coming near to Him 
was not a right that they could exercise at any time, nor was this coming to God without payment. No, they were brought near through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No other payment and no other blood would do. No other payment and no other blood would do. Horatius Bonar, the great Scottish pastor, in 1861 wrote a hymn that we are very familiar with. And in that hymn, he writes this. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. You see, Paul reminds these Ephesian Gentiles and us, and us right here this morning, that the only way a sinner is reconciled to God and brought near to him is through the blood of Christ. The blood is not superfluous. The blood is not extra. The blood is not a footnote. The blood is at the very center of our salvation. It's through the blood of Jesus that we have been brought near to God the Father and reconciled to Him. This is how we must understand the Christian life. If we think of drawing near to God apart from Christ's shed blood, we are not thinking of the biblical Christian faith the way we ought. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, I love you. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do we say that? Is that just an add-on? Is that superfluous? No, it is not. The reason why we pray in Jesus' name or in the matchless name of Jesus or some form of that is because we are underlining and highlighting this truth, this gospel truth, that we pray to the Father. Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. We pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a mediator, and every time we pray to the Father in the Spirit through the Son, we are reinforcing the gospel. Language of being brought near to God reminds us of the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, for instance. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, now listen, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a fantastic passage that is. So full, so rich with gospel truth. But we enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, not because of our good works, not because we have performed so well, but because of Christ and His shed blood and righteousness. Christians have been, by grace through faith, brought near to God through the blood of Christ. I remember one of my seminary professors, Dr. Douglas Kelly, we were at a Twin Lakes Fellowship, which is a ministerial fellowship that meets south of Jackson uh, every year. And I remember as he was preaching one of his famous 90-minute messages uh, at the uh, ministerial fellowship that at one point he just said three or four times, preach the blood, preach the blood, preach the blood. And uh, I'll never forget it. And that's what Paul did. That's what the apostles did. They preached the blood of Christ, that which was shed for our salvation to reconcile us to God. That's the price that was paid to pay the debt of our sin. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, we have similar words. The writer states again in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and we are as we are yet without sin. Let us then, now listen, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What an encouragement. Dear Christian, as you are listening to this, as you are listening via live stream, if you are here with us this morning, remember this. You are called by God and His Word to draw near to Him with confidence because Christ has shed His blood for you. And he has opened the way for you to have fellowship and communion with God in the Holy of Holies whenever and wherever you approach with confidence. You draw near. Why? To receive mercy and find grace. Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Are you in a time of need? Are you in a time of need? Has have you gotten caught up in secret sin? Is this a time of need where you need mercy and grace and forgiveness and that, that strength to persevere and to overcome, to get disentangled from that sin that's slowing you down? Perhaps you need mercy and grace and strength because you are going through a physical trial. Perhaps you are missing a loved one today. Today is... Father's Day, and many of us are missing our, our fathers. Go to your heavenly Father with confidence.
through the blood of Christ to find mercy, to find grace in time of need. John Newton in 1779 penned these words, O wondrous love, to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Well, as we close, just a couple of words of application. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, if you are not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, then according to God's word, you are without hope and without God in this world. You have, if you are not united to Christ, if there is not the evidence of a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are, by all accounts and by the biblical definition, without hope. You have no hope and you are without God in this world. And there is only one thing more horrific than living this life without hope and without God, and that is to spend eternity in that same condition. Without hope, without God, forever and ever and ever. These Gentile Christians in Ephesus were once alienated from God and His people, strangers to the covenants of promise, separated from Christ. But God, in His sovereign mercy and grace, saved them. He sweetly drew them to Himself through the saving blood of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what is the condition of your soul this morning? Are you living with hope? And with the true assurance of saving faith in Jesus Christ? If the answer is no, I plead with you to turn from your sin this morning. It doesn't matter if you are a a church member, a covenant child, someone who has even given lip service to, to Christ your entire life. If you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior and surrendered and bowed the knee to Him as your Lord and King, then do so now, for today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Draw near to Him by grace through faith and receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. And this is a a great time of need for you if you are outside of Christ and dying in your sins. May you no longer be a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ, knowing the joy and the freedom of God's grace and forgiveness in Him. But secondly, if you know you are in Christ this morning and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, then draw near to Him afresh today with confidence and full assurance of faith, humbly yet boldly coming before His throne of grace, living a life that is God-centered, Christ-mediated, and Spirit-filled. 
This is how we should understand our lives as Christians, not living as the rest of the world does with a, a little sprinkle of Christianity. You know, the old fiery evangelist would talk about, you know, people having their fire insurance in their back pocket, you know, with the date of their, the date that they walk down the aisle. As if walking down an aisle and having no real evidence of knowing Christ or having a dead faith means anything. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And faith, the fruit of faith, has repentance, ongoing repentance and a living and a vital faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. does not mean a person is without sin as a believer. Of course not. We still struggle against sin, but we know that we have that sin and, and we know it displeases God. And so we repent of that sin daily. We mortify that sin. And we walk in the newness of resurrection life in Christ. We draw near to God if we are in Christ, drawing near to Him in, in personal worship, in family worship, in, in corporate worship. We are committed to Him by His grace. Let us draw near to Him with confidence and full assurance. Dear ones, the hallmark of our lives should be God-exalting confidence and joy in Christ's atoning work and faithful, growing obedience to His commands. We should not be downcast and discontent as believers, for we have been brought near to God fountain of love and peace and joy and hope in Christ. Thirdly, thirdly, we are encouraged in this passage to live with the ever-present reality of who we once were and who we now are. That always ought to be resting on us. We, we, we ought to make it our prayer that, that we would Feel deeply. It's a prayer I pray often, uh, just about every time, you know, um, I don't know that I prayed it this morning, but just about every time I step in the pulpit, I pray this prayer. Lord, help me to feel deeply that which I'm about to preach. And as Christians, we want to feel deeply who we were apart from Christ and now who we are presently in him, And this, dear ones, will serve to cultivate a heart of increasing gratitude and humility, the very attributes that should characterize every sincere believer, gratitude and humility, overwhelmed with a sense of our own sin and with a sense of God's love for us. It is only by the Jews and Gentiles understanding God's amazing grace in their own lives, that unity in the church would be a possibility and a reality. And it's to this subject, of course, that we will turn this evening. So many in the world are using false ideologies and methodologies to bring unity amongst those who are different. But we know that that possibility is only possible in Christ, where the walls of hostility are broken down because of the blood of Christ poured out for sinners of whom we are all. 
in this world. The final thing I want to mention is let us remember the lost. May we remember the lost. Let us pray for the lost. Let us reach out to the lost, for they are presently without hope and without God in the world. Dear ones, may we be salt and light to our community and to our present generation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your truth by your spirit bringing conviction, stirring our hearts to hate indwelling sin and to to love Christ and the gospel and the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would draw to yourself those who have never known you. And we pray, O God, that you would strengthen the faith of those who already do and that you would give us all a deeper sense of who we were and who we are and that it would give us grateful hearts and that you would give us a heart, Lord, for the lost, those who remain hopeless and without God in the world, those who are alienated from you and strangers to your promises. We pray that by our witness in our community, that many would no longer be strangers to your promises, but be familiar with them because we've shared them and we've invited them to church and we've reached out to them. Oh Lord, grant us that boldness and courage and opportunity to share this love with our community in the coming days and years. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.